You're listening to the regular podcast from Pete the Vet's blog. This was first broadcast on East Coast FM. Pete Weatherburn is here, our vet. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Jacqueline. Good morning. Thanks for coming in um, today. And, uh, you know, Pete is from his veterinary practice on Old Connor in uh, Bray, but also you can see him on TV3 and he writes for the local papers and the Daily Telegraph and he's got a website called PeteTheVet.com. His introduction is getting longer all the time <laughs> because of his involvement in many things. He didn't even include my qualifications. Which are? Well, vets have got complicated co- uh, qualifications in their names. So I'm BVM and S, Cert VR, MRCVS. Now, but nobody believes no, that. that, that make, that's gobbledygook to most people. Um, but, but any vet would say to you, well, that means, okay, it means that I qualified in Edinburgh. That's what BVM and S tells you. Whereas Dublin is MVB. So that tells you that. Um, then Cert VR is a certificate in vet and radiology, and that tells you the qualification is done after I qualified as a vet. I did an extra qualification, and MRCVS means Member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So as a British vet, you see, originally it means that I'm I'm a life member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So there you go. It, may, it makes sense to, to vets, but to to to, to people, the general public, it's just a load of gobbledygook, isn't it? Right. Has anybody ever come around and check all that? Um, <laughs> um, well, I, um, every year you have to register with, with the Veterinary Council and, and they kind of, I suppose they check your qualifications and they, they might do a spot check to make absolutely sure you're not just telling fibs. Yeah, but originally, when you go on to the register with those initials, originally you do have to present the documentation to prove it. Yes, you do indeed. So they check it at the start and, um, you know, that's really it. Um, one of the interesting things about vets is that we're misters, not doctors in Ireland and in the UK, most of the world were actually called doctors. So if you're in the States, you'd be a, I'd be Dr. Pete, um, and, uh, you know, or in Australia or in most of Europe. But in, in Ireland and Britain, we're misters. Um, and that's yeah. because we're veterinary surgeons, which is like, you know, consultants. They, they, they stop being doctors when they become consultants, don't they? Human doctors. They become misters again. So it's kind of like a sort of reverse kind of snobbery, really. We're kind of, we're too good to be just doctors. You know, we're misters. <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> but, I mean, I suppose it's the relationship. It's always first-name terms, isn't it, with people? Well, it didn't used to be at all. Like, when I was growing up, seeing practices with vets, I would always call a vet Mr. Mr. Ingalls or whatever his name was, it would always be Mr. And indeed, there are practices in the UK which tends to be more, I suppose, traditional in that sense. Um, the young vets would have to call the older vets Mr. So I'd be Mr. Wedderburn to, to them. But um, I suppose you, you, you redo things according to what feels right to you. And I don't like being called Mr. by anybody. It just doesn't... Mr. Wedderburn... I mean, I don't mind when people call me Mr. Wedderburn, but I don't feel it's necessary. I'd be much more comfortable being called Pete by everybody. Right. So that's the way it is. Um, do you get many new problems? New problems? Yeah. Every day you see new things. I mean, I think that's the fascinating aspect of a job as a vet, that every day there's something different. I mean, yesterday is a good example. A cat came to see me and it had stopped eating. Now, there was nothing... I could see wrong with the cat. It just had stopped eating. It's a two-year-old cat, very bright and very chirpy, and, you know, looked around the room with interest and came towards me and purred and, you know, seemed like a normal cat. But the cat had just stopped eating. So why on earth was that? 
So I examined the cat, could find nothing wrong. I checked under its tongue to see was sometimes they have a loop of thread or something or something stuck under their tongue that can stop from eating, but no, that looked normal. Um, and I was about to launch into things like blood tests and other investigations, but I thought, well, there's something about the cat's head that just I didn't really quite like the look of. So I, I went back to the cat's mouth, opened again, looked under the tongue, but this time I opened the cat's mouth really wide and peered right down its throat. And when I did that, what I could see was right at the very, very back of its throat, behind its tongue, at the, at the opening, if you like, of its esophagus, I could just see something white that wasn't right, something that was just not normal. Um, and so I had another really good look and I could see then there was something stuck there. And I couldn't reach it, or I couldn't even see it properly, so I had to give that cat a general anaesthetic and then was able to yank its jaws right open and peer to the back of its throat with a scope. And there was a chicken bone, a little V-shaped chicken bone, about two centimetres on each angle of the V, and it was stuck right at the back of its throat, just above where the food goes in. So therefore the cat could do everything normally, but just when it tried to eat food, it couldn't get the food in because the food would just get stuck on this bone. So, you know, that was a really good example of a pure veterinary unique problem. If a human did that, they would obviously say to the doctor, there's something stuck in the back of my throat, but a cat can't do that. Um, and it was very hard to deduce it. And I had never seen that before. So that was a new problem. I mean, it's an old problem in the sense that animals do sometimes get, get bones stuck in their mouths. But that particular location, right at the far back where you couldn't see it easily, was an unusual one and um, would have been easily missed actually I just happened to go back again and have another wee look at the back of the throat but there you are and been stuck into the cat I mean did it uh, damage uh, the inside and it, it uh, was at know. each contact point of the bone there was a, a, um, a small a small hole in, in, in the lining of the throat yes not very big I mean it, the bone had probably been there for about three or four days and so at the pressure point where it was stuck yes there was an area of infected diseased looking um the lining of the mouth so cat has to have a short course of antibiotics but um i wouldn't expect long-term complications um yeah so this i mean that's that's an example of a kind of one-off thing i'm not going to see another thing like that for probably another 15 years um but every day there's something that's a bit different that that, that crops up that makes the job interesting it's no day is ever the same. In fact, for me, one of the real challenges is that I write a column every week for the Evening Herald on a, on a Saturday weekend. As well, I, I left that one out of the intro. You did. Because we would have been here all morning. <laughs> but, what, but my challenge is that I have to come up with a new and different and interesting case with a photograph of it every week for the Herald. And I've been doing that every week for the last eight years. And, you know, Mondays when I write the article, Mondays come round and I go, what on earth am I going to write about this week? And the funny thing is that every week something comes in that is new and different and interesting. And I think it's one of the joys of the job of a vet is that you're never going to get bored to the extent that you're always going to have your mind stimulated and you're always going to have to find the answer to challenging problems because that's just the nature of the job. And are there uh, a lot of diseases, illnesses, um, things that happen to animals in common? Or do you have to be animal specific in, in most cases? The, do you mean like dogs versus cats versus cattle and horses? That yeah, kind of and rabbits and people who come with their. I, yeah, I think the general principle or something. Yeah, the general principles are the same. So if you've got a a, a, um, a nasty wound in a gerbil or a duck or a cow or a horse or whatever, the principles of of treating that wound are the same. Um, um, 
But there are specific illnesses that different animals have. For example, rabbits are prone to getting blocked tear ducts, which just never happens in cats, for example, or and not so much in dogs. It's a big issue with rabbits. Um, cats are prone to um, particular types of dietary deficiencies. If they don't get the right diet, they can develop particular specific problems that only cats get. Guinea pigs have to be given vitamin C in their diet every day. No other animals do, no other pets do. So only guinea pigs do. So you have to learn the specifics for each different species. Um, it's getting more and more specialised. Like when I qualified as a vet, which is over 25 years ago now, you qualified as a general vet and you went into mixed practice and you did everything. So I would have seen pigs, cattle, sheep, horses, dogs, cats, gerbils, hamsters, everything I would see. And I would be seen as very competent in all of those. Nowadays, it's much more difficult to do that because people have higher expectations. And so um, people tend to very much become pet-only vets or large animal-only vets or horse-only vets. And it's now getting even more specialised. So like within our own practice, we're just about to open a cat-only clinic where the vet will see nothing but cats. Because people who have cats expect such a high standard of knowledge of cat medicine and surgery that they would prefer to see somebody who sees no other animals only cats. And the more you see of one type of patient you see, the more you see of them, the better you get at them because it's just, you know, with experience and repetition, you, you learn more about that particular species. So cat-only clinics are likely, they become a big thing in other countries. It's very likely that Ireland's going to follow. And that indeed, there'll be dog-only clinics, perhaps gerbil-only clinics one day. Who knows? Right. And is that not a disadvantage for the vets to a degree? Because they'll only be able to do cats because they lose sight of all the other knowledge that they had about other animals. Um, they, I think vets have to follow their interests and they have to follow the market to some extent as well. So, for example, the, the vets in our clinic who will be doing just cats... They love cat medicine. They f they love cats in general. They're fascinated by the feline creature, and they 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 just are really in uh, they enjoy immersing themselves in in everything about cats, and so. The vet has to be interested, for starters. But secondly, there has to be a market there. So, ten years ago, there wouldn't have been enough cats for a vet to see nothing but cats. Whereas now, we would judge that, yes, there are enough cats out there that people want to see nothing, want to go to a vet who sees nothing but cats. Um, and so, you, yeah... That my idea that you could have a gerbil owner clinic is obviously ludicrous because there will never be enough gerbil owners that a vet can earn a living from seeing nothing but gerbils. But um, cats have moved up the ladder of priorities, so yes, we think that a cat-only vet will be successful. <laughs> um. <laughs> all right, well, the best of luck anyway with all that. Thanks Thank very much indeed, Pete, Thank you, for dropping in today. Pete Weatherburn uh, and his website, so you can hear this broadcast again, is petethevet.com. Thanks, Pete.